0: Matthew 13, verses 44 to 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping. And gnashing of teeth have you understood all these things they said to him yes and he said to them therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old this is the word of the Lord
1: good morning My name's Mike. Welcome to Trinity. I'm excited to worship with you this morning. Wow, there's like a good number of you here. (laughs) Typically when the time changes, there's like, we're like seriously depleted. So glad to see you all here. Well, I guess we did jump forward though, right? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to do the math. In any case, let's open in prayer and we will dive into the passage. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for these parables and on a very personal level, just how enriching it's it's been to my own faith to to walk through these. your kingdom is truly upside down it's counterintuitive and and even though today 's parables in some ways are, are some of the most straightforward um, we we may need you for this sermon more than than any other because in, in order to really have this hit us these parables hit us we we need to Something needs to happen in our hearts so that we can recognize how desirable the kingdom is, how desirable ultimately you are. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So if, if you've read a little bit of philosophy or took like a Philosophy 101 course, you may know that one of the topics that's argued about and discussed or whatever quite a bit in, in philosophy is the topic of beauty, the topic of beauty. And in philosophy, it's very hard to ever, like, arrive at a definition of anything, right? So truth, goodness, we don't have a definition, but, but, and beauty is the same way. But there are certain ways of describing beauty that philosophers have happened upon over the years, and they really kind of stuck. And one of those descriptions of, of beauty that gets tossed around in the discipline of philosophy is that beauty is desirable for its own sake, Beauty is desirable for its own sake so what do they mean by what, what, what do they mean by that well, there are lots of things that we desire like money or attention or, or safety or power but we, we sort of desire those things because they're a means to an end they're not an end in of themselves. We, we desire them so that we can get something else so we desire money for instance, because with money we can buy things that will make us feel powerful or make us feel happy or comfortable or, or any number of things. These are means to an end, not ends in themselves. So they're not desirable for their own sake. They're desirable for the sake of whatever it is you're going to use them to get. You see what I mean? So you follow with me so far? So with beauty, things are a little bit different. So like right now in my office upstairs, I have a print of a painting by Makoto Fujimura. He's a Japanese-American artist. He happens to be a believer as well. But the painting is called Kiseki, and it's this like gorgeous, it's a modern art piece of like a tree, and it's a blossoming like cherry blossom tree, and just a really, really beautiful painting. I didn't desire a print of Kiseki because I'm going to like use it to get something else, right? I desired it because I, it's beautiful. Because I, I want to sort of daily, it, it like means something to me, and it's beauty, and I want to daily encounter this beautiful thing. We desire beauty because we desire beauty. So now there's even more to this, though. A lot of things we desire are very good, and we desire them because they make our lives happier in a way. Like they help us live the good life, or they're good for society, or they reduce stress, or you know, whatever. They bring happiness. But the other, the other amazing thing about beauty... Beauty is so desirable that we'll set aside happiness to get it. So like there's a lot of examples of this. I could go with the really cheesy one about like the guy who goes to just any length to win the heart of that beautiful woman. And like I could do that, but there's actually even more powerful examples where beauty has this way of totally decentering a person off themselves, and you have folks who will go into under-resourced, deeply depressed areas of the world and pour out their lives give up everything about their personal happiness so that that place in the world can become more beautiful and become livable. That there's something about beauty that decenters us, puts us off ourselves. Because in beauty, there's this thing that's worth more than immediate happiness. And the kingdom of God is like that. It's ultimate beauty because its king is beauty itself. And because of that, it's worth so much more than anything in the world. The kingdom is something so desirable that it's worth setting aside temporary happiness to get it. The kingdom is desirable for its own sake because its king is desirable for its own sake. So here's the, the main point for today. We're going to find the kingdom is worth anything we give up and nothing is worth giving up the kingdom. So the kingdom is worth anything we give up. And nothing is worth giving up the kingdom. You guys know how we sometimes do this. We're just going to take that sentence and piece it apart. So we're going to start with the first half. The kingdom is worth anything we give up. Verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus tells two parables with with very, very similar meanings. In the first one, a guy's walking in a field, and we don't know if he is like an employee, you know, tilling the land or something. We don't know, but in any, in any case, he doesn't own the field, right? He doesn't own this field. And while he's kind of wandering in this field, he finds treasure, right? Not just treasure, but incredibly valuable treasure, treasure that far exceeds anything that, that he could possibly, like the worth of anything he could give to get that treasure, right? So he runs out, he sells everything he has because that's the cost of the field, buys the field, and ends up getting far more than just a field. He gets the treasure, the second story is like it. You've got a merchant who seems to be buying and selling pearls. Right? It says he's in search of pearls, so he's a, like a pearl merchant. These guys were likely loaded. And he finds this one pearl that, that makes him think, like, oh man, I, I need to own that. Like That is a pearl that exceeds the value of anything else I've seen before. And so he sells everything. All his riches are laid down so he can get this one pearl. So first I'll tell you what I don't think these parables... I'll tell you what these parables aren't saying. They aren't literally instructing us to sell everything we have, but they are here to tell us that the kingdom is so valuable that if we did need to sell everything we had, it would be worth it. They are here to tell us that the kingdom is so valuable if we did need to sell everything to get it, it would be worth it. Well, these parables Get at it. it has a lot to do with the obstacles in each of our lives that keep us from repenting, from believing, from following Jesus. They, they sort of get us in touch with how amazingly worth it it is to follow Jesus. And so to get a sense of the kingdom's worth, we have to ask two questions. What is the kingdom? It'll be a little bit of review, but is great. So what is the kingdom? And then, why is it so valuable? So start with, with what is the kingdom? I'm asking you guys to remember almost a year ago now, but, but early on in Matthew, remember Jesus comes on the scene and what is the announcement that he makes? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the crux of Jesus' message throughout the book of Matthew, like the, the center of Jesus' message is the announcement that God's kingdom is at hand. It's, it's in him, it's within arm's reach. And so he, he, he makes this announcement. And on one level, we're like, Okay, wait a minute, I thought that God was already king. And he absolutely is. He is the creator. There's nothing he doesn't own, right? But that doesn't mean that all things operate according to the way he, he made things to operate. Early on in the Bible story, humans reject the rule of God. They want to be autonomous. They like self-governance, right? Independence. And so humans reject the rule of God. And so they lose the rule of God. And things spin out into chaos. And the story of the Bible is the story of how God loves and redeems humanity and restores his kingdom to creation. So that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus is saying that the story of redemption is coming to its climax, that when he shows up, the decisive move against evil is about to be made, right? The winning victory is about to take place, and it's going to take place in Christ. The God administration is about to begin. So when Jesus announces early in Matthew that the kingdom is at hand, what he's saying is that the final chapter of human history is about to start. He's saying God's way of doing things is about to be ushered in. And the way it all happens is through the cross and the resurrection. In the cross, Jesus dies and suffers the destiny of all of us Because we rejected the relationship with God. So in the cross, God heals the relationship between himself and humans. So any of us who trust in Jesus can be forgiven and be a part of the restored creation. And and in the resurrection, it's an interesting thing. In the resurrection, we're actually seeing the first glimpse of that new creation. When Jesus shows up, he shows up as like the sun just creeping over the hills like it's the first sign of morning and one day we're going to see the whole thing we're going to see light flood this landscape and if we need proof that the morning's coming we look to the resurrected Lord In the resurrection we're given the hope of new creation and so for any of us who have trusted in Jesus's death to be a gift for us his resurrection will be a gift for us as well and we will be made new. So that's what the kingdom is. It's the world as God wants it. It's the future that Jesus secured for us. And it's also the, the way of life that, we, that Jesus launches right now, that we, we begin to participate in right now. So It's the world as God wants it. So why is it so valuable? That's what the kingdom is. Why do we want that? Like, let's stir some self-interest into this, right? Like, why do we want the kingdom? And so what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to just take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Just for like one minute, we're going to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, something that we, we walked through a few months ago. The Sermon on the Mount is prescriptive, right? It's, it's commands, it's prescribing a way of life, but because it's prescribing the way of life that God desires for his people, it's also descriptive. Not just prescriptive, but descriptive, it's describing the world as it can and will be under God's rule. And so let's take a few examples from from the Sermon on the Mount. It's it's in chapter 5. I'll be jumping around, though, so it might be a little hard to follow me. But I'll be basically in chapters 5 and 6 for just a minute. So take a look at the Beatitudes. What we find is that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the poor and the disadvantaged find this place of honor in the kingdom Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, those who have suffered loss, those who are grieving the evil of this world, who have lost people, they will find comfort. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is verse 6, hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. In other words, those who just desire peace and desire goodness, they will have more. They'll be more than satisfied because the kingdom is filled with the goodness of God and lives flourish there. We see that the, the meek shall inherit the earth, the lowly will be recognized, the unassuming will be honored. Going further down, in the kingdom, anger is completely changed so that people don't dehumanize each other or try to control each other and then get ticked off when they learn that they can't control each other, and they try to make use of that person and like, pour wrath on them with, with anger. They don't dehumanize each other with anger. Going down even further, in the kingdom, there's no lust. Lust does not have a place. So people aren't using each other for pleasure, right? So a woman can look into the eyes of a man knowing that he wasn't using them minutes ago to undress her. Then Even farther down, oaths. People are truth-tellers in the kingdom. And the kingdom is a place where people tell the truth. They don't use their words to manipulate each other or manage each other's like, perception of the world. They say what they mean. In the kingdom, love is overflowing because its king is the God who has poured out his love for us, and that love extends even to our enemies. The kingdom is a place of moral beauty, desirable for its own sake. All things will reflect the character of the beautiful God. Lives are restored to true humanness. The metaphor that Jesus used last week was that the righteous will shine like stars in the kingdom of their hev- uh, of their father i don 't think what he means is that will be like iridescent bulbs right <laughs> like i don 't think that Jesus is saying that will like literally i don 't know you know, but I think the the, the point that he 's getting at is he's, you know he 's quoting from an earlier Old Testament text the point is that In the kingdom of heaven, people, like God will heal people and their lives will become so caught up in his glory and become such a reflection of his character that they will become glorious. They will shine like stars in the kingdom of their father. And most of all, God will be with us. As we've never experienced it before. The reason why the kingdom is desirable for its own sake is because God is desirable for his own sake. And God is there. When you get the kingdom, you get God. So, do we see why this is beautiful? Do we see why this is desirable? This is life as as it was meant to be lived. This is everything we need. Like, we don't get God in the kingdom so that we can pawn it off, right? Like, it's not a means to an end. Like, this is what we were made for. This whole reality is made possible because of the cross and the resurrection, and most of it hasn't arrived yet. Oftentimes, the kingdom have you guys ever heard the already but not yet? Thing that the kingdom is already on some level. There's part of the kingdom that's visible now. There's ways in which we can get glimpses of what God's rule is like. But most of it is not yet. Most of it is future, right? But some of it is visible now. And, and one of the, the, the big ways, probably the biggest way that it's visible now, is through the community of God's people. So, like, over the past couple weeks, I, not, I didn't have any, like, Motive or anything, just I happened to ask a number of of you how community groups were going, and I ended up getting a lot of stories and then i don 't know if, if all of you were at our last family meeting, but we had like a testimony time and, and again i 've been just thinking on those stories and the other testimony times that we had at both of our, our worship nights that we had this year and so my, my, my mind has just been flooded with stories coming out of our little congregation and those stories are of people caring for each other. They're, they're stories of people loving one another and making sacrifices to pour into each other's lives. And I want you to know that that is a glimpse of the kingdom. That you guys have been living out of the love you've received in Christ. And all over this congregation, the Spirit has been at work through service. I'm not saying that we're perfect, right? Far from it, but the Spirit is at work. And so when we see folks, like, laying down time to repair a vehicle, or we see folks bringing meals or grieving with one another, those are glimpses of the way of life that will be lived in the kingdom. So I want to give God glory for that and what he has done in our midst because it is beautiful. God is using us broken, sinful creatures, like these humble vessels, right? Can't take credit for a thing. God is making his kingdom visible in our midst. and It's awesome. So keep following Jesus. (laughs) Keep following Jesus. Keep being dependent on his grace because beautiful things are taking place. The kingdom is uh, king and his kingdom, nothing is more valuable than that. Nothing's more de- desirable than that. And what I want to point out too, in, in these parables, notice that like the treasure and the pearl are not being bought for what they're worth. You see that? So like if, if these guys sold everything they had, And the treasure and the pearl was like the exact market value of everything they had. Why sell everything you have, right? It's a wash. Just keep everything you have. But instead, like, the idea is that these things are so much more valuable, that's nothing to them, right? The one guy literally says he goes off with joy and just gives away all his possessions. And the reason why is because, like, this is a steal, what they're purchasing, the, the cost that it's being being offered at is a steal. So much so that they give away everything they have to get it. And I think Matthew is telling us something. Jesus is telling us something. God is inviting people into his kingdom by grace alone. We don't bring something to the table. We can't qualify ourselves for entry. The kingdom is being given away to those who recognize their need and just come to Jesus for forgiveness and meaning. The kingdom is a free gift that we receive by putting our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Because of him, the kingdom that costs more than everything we have is being given away for free. The kingdom is worth anything we give up, but there are still things that we might choose over it. The kingdom is worth anything we give up, but there are still things we may choose over it. Many of us may do just that, and so that's why the second part of today's sentence is so important. Nothing is worth giving up the kingdom. Verses 47 to 52. Again, the kingdom is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'll actually stop there. I'll save the the last two verses until a little bit later. So in in this parable, Jesus is essentially kind of reiterating what he did last week with the parable of, of the weeds. So what we have are these fishermen fishing, and oftentimes what this would look like is you'd have two boats next to each other, and there'd be a net in between. And so as the boats are sort of sailing down, I don't know, for freshwater fishing, I guess you'd call it like the strike zone, I don't know. But in any case, as they're sailing down, there's more and more fish being piled into these nets. Now, these guys in the parable, they're almost certainly Jewish fishermen. So if they're going to abide by kosher laws, something's going to happen, like they're going to get a bunch of fish that they can't use. So like any anything like an eel or a catfish, crawfish, all that stuff is actually going to have to be discarded. And so at the end of the whole fishing outing, when the time's right, the net is full, there's no more fish to be had, they're going to come ashore and open out that net and one by one they will have to separate the fish that will remain in the fish that get tossed back into the water. And so it's, a, it's an image, again, of final judgment, a lot of what we got into last week. And, and Jesus tells this story for a reason. He, I think he tells it here at the end of all these parables, and I think he tells it right at the end of the treasure and pearl parables because he doesn't want us to pass up on the kingdom. But why would any of us pass up on the kingdom? So, there's a Russian director, his name is Andrei Tarkovsky, he was actually a believer. He's considered like one of the masters of cinema, right? There's like this group of like 20 or so guys who are just like, I can't even believe how good you are, like just really, really good at making movies. So, he's one of the masters. And in the 70s, he made this like super, super slow-moving sci-fi movie called Stalker. It's It's like the slowest movie ever. It's just so slow and it's three hours long, it's genius. But it's three hours long. I think a nap has to take place halfway through, and then you can finish it. It is genius, though. So in any case, so it's a sci-fi movie, and in the movie, there's this place called The Zone. And the, the The Zone is, like, nobody lives there. Most people are terrified of it. It's beautiful. It's like this, like, sweeping fields and hills. It's this big, like, wilderness kind of place, The Zone. But The Zone also kind of has a mind of its own so it'll change on people between visits and like booby traps will just deploy people die there but people still end up going to the zone and the reason why is because in the center of the zone is the room with a capital r the room in the center of the zone and if you get to the room then your deepest desire will be fulfilled And so when somebody decides that they actually want to risk their lives and go into the zone and try to find the room and get their greatest desire, they'll hire a stalker. The the title of the movie, The Stalker, and these guys are kind of like social outcasts. The, The one in the movie is like just kind of this weak, impotent, you know, person, but he understands the zone. He's at home when he's there. And so he gets hired. The the movie follows him. It's more or less from his perspective. And so he's going to guide two men through the zone. One's a writer, one's a professor. You never know their names. You only know the professions. And and Tarkovsky, he wants us to see that these guys are like worldly, successful men. They're intelligent, right? The first time you see the writer, he's like leaning up against a luxury car, taking a drag on a cigarette and charming some young woman. The professor is just this like he's just hounding after his career. He's just this humorless, ambitious man competing with his peers. And the stalker takes these two guys who kind of have everything. He takes them into the zone. And there's this point in the movie where he actually gets them to the room. They're at the destination where all their wildest desires are going to come to fruition. And the writer and the professor are on the edge of the room and they both flake. So the writer he goes back and forth, right? He's like, how do we even know this thing works? How do we even know that it works? And I'm not sure it would be a good thing if it did work. You know, so he's going back and forth. The professor pulls out a bomb. He fully believes that the room works. He just thinks it's a bad thing. And so he, he brings this bomb, ends up dismantling it later, but brings a bomb, and his intention is to blow the room up. Both of them are confronted with the possibility of getting their deepest desires, and they want nothing to do with it. And a couple scenes later, the stalker and all of them, they, they've returned home, and the stalker comes home, and he's with his wife, and he just starts weeping that these guys passed up on it. They're just crying to his wife. And he's, like, laying in his bed and sobbing. This happens every time that he takes somebody, you learn. You learn that he takes people repeatedly to the room, and they're confronted by the, the deepest desire. And one after another, they all say no. And as he's, he's weeping to his wife, he says, how can they believe? In other words, how can they believe in the room in such a way that they take advantage of it? How can they believe? All they're thinking about from minute to minute is how not to be sold too cheap. All they're thinking about is how to sell themselves for a higher price. Every minute of their lives should get what it deserves, He's being sarcastically, like they are born for some purpose. They have to pursue their calling because after all, they only live once. He's saying that again and again and again, people are being brought to the room and they miss out because they're too afraid of missing out. They miss out because they're too afraid of missing out. And I think this is an act of danger for us as well. Jesus' kingdom is beautiful, it is overwhelmingly desirable, but it can be terrifying too. Because in following Jesus, he will ask us to reorganize our lives by the values of the kingdom. And so as we follow Jesus, we will miss out on revenge because he tells us to forgive our enemies. We we will miss out on getting to use every single ounce of our resources because he tells us to find him in the faces of the hungry and the thirsty and the poor and the imprisoned. You will find yourself giving time, giving yourself to friends and family, to those within the church and those without who need you. He will tell us to to miss out on attention or or relevance because our message will often be unpopular and we'll miss out on leisure because we'll sometimes be pouring our lives out for people. On the flip side, we'll miss out on accomplishments because Jesus tells us to not define ourselves by productivity. At the outset, it looks like we're going to miss out on a lot if we follow Jesus. Here's the thing, many of those things are good. Leisure and accomplishment, those aren't sinful things. Like, you should not feel condemned if you have a night binge-watching Netflix, right? But if you are organizing your life in order to maximize the time that you spend binge-watching Netflix, then Jesus will call you to reconsider. These are means to an end. They aren't ends in themselves. They aren't our purpose. And when we turn these blessings into, like, our ultimate priorities, they become real obstacles for us. It's hard to let go of these things when we've become convinced that without them our lives will be shallow. We think if I follow Jesus I'm going to miss out and that's a real obstacle. But what we see in these parables is that many of us are in danger of missing out precisely because of our fear of missing out. We want to flourish. We want to enjoy life every single minute. We, we don't want to be sold too, sh- too cheap. We want to enjoy life so badly that we miss out on the one thing that is worth more than our immediate gratification. Don't let means keep you from ends. Don't let things keep you from Jesus. Don't let even immediate happiness keep you from Jesus. The cost of refusing the kingdom is far more than the cost to gain it. The cost of refusing the kingdom is far more than the cost to gain it. The kingdom is worth anything we give up, and nothing is worth giving up the kingdom. So here we are. We're at the end of chapter 13. We've made it through these parables of the kingdom, and and it's at this point where we're we see all the disciples, right? They're kind of gathered around Jesus, and Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And they say, yes. They've come to the end of all these parables. And now Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says something utterly weird, where he just says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What does he mean by that? (laughs) So the disciples have learned a lot. We've learned a lot. And now Jesus is saying, You're like a scribe. So the scribes were teachers of the Hebrew scriptures. They helped people understand the nature of God, they helped them them understand his creation, his word, how he works, how to take part in what he's doing. Scribes sort of taught the law, they examined the scriptures. And Jesus is saying that we become kind of like scribes discipled for the kingdom, we share what we receive. We share what we learn. And so you guys might remember from Steve's sermon on on community that we want to be a church that's together for growth. And so what that means is that we want to love each other by helping each other love Jesus, right? Love each other by helping each other love Jesus. And I think one of the big ways that we can do that on a day-to-day level, help each other see why the kingdom is beautiful. Help each other see why the kingdom is desirable for its own sake. Share what you receive. So for the parable of the sower, we remind each other that we may face pressure, we may be tempted away by pleasure, but the good soil bears fruit and so do true disciples. So remind each other of the gospel so we can increasingly be changed by the mercy of God in Christ. In the parable of the weeds, and the parables of the net, we learn that we must follow Jesus in the midst of evil in this world. We're going to face resistance. It's going to be confusing. But God will be faithful to bring his kingdom, banish the darkness, and heal all things in the new creation. So help each other. Be patient. Bear each other's burdens. Help each other to the finish line. In the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast, We learn that the kingdom grows even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it's not immediately apparent. So remind each other of this when hope seems impossible. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, and God is always working. From the parables of the treasure and the pearl, remember that God's kingdom is coming, and it is beautiful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are inviting people by sheer grace into the kingdom. Thank you that we do not have to qualify ourselves for it. Thank you that you have provided everything for us to to be a part and to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that you would change us by your love, that we would walk in the freedom of forgiveness, and that we would be changed by it. Amen.